0: I'm going to have you turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, and we're going to start in verse 18. 18, 18. So, you know, while you're making your way there, I was thinking about this. The life of somebody who follows Jesus, you get all these these pictures, like whether it's uh, all the kindnesses of God, right? The. The mercy of God in uh, watching over a friend, you know, who goes through something difficult. The mercy of God in taking someone home who's in pain, uh, who belongs to him. How we get to share the word together. How we get a picture of the great gospel. You know, I know that, that we all come through these doors and we're in different places and that's okay. I just want you to know that God is big enough and good enough for that. So that if you're in a great place and you have a lot of the spiritual vitality right now, great. Thank God for that. But I just also want you to know if you're not in a great place and you're wondering, you know, what's there for you. I just want you to know Jesus is strong enough to carry you. That's what he's been doing. Um, Because he's great. So we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through chapter 19, uh, verse 7. And what we're really going to be doing is we're going to be looking at this new work in Acts uh, in the city of Ephesus. And so what, how, it, how it operates there, and we're going to see something that has way less to do with strategy and all of that, and way more to do with just that Jesus is going to do his thing. He's going to, um, that the word about him is going to get out by the power of his spirit, and he's going to change people's lives, and he can do that for you this morning. So let's look at it together. It's Acts 18, starting in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Centria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. They came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, "'Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?' And they said, "'No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit.'" And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your powerful work. Work to address what is fundamentally flawed in us. Our sin. To carry it away. Um, As we look in your word, we ask that you help us to make it clear and to understand it and to uh, share it with each other with joy and with hope. And to make central Jesus. Um, And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you'd work in our lives so that we'd be closer to you and we'd represent Jesus uh, better and better, brighter and brighter. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. so Ephesus. Ephesus is this, you know, kind of new development in Acts at this point. And by the time of Paul, it was a great city. You might even say it was probably viewed by Paul as something of a strategic place for the gospel to advance and to to go out. So it was the kind of place that had everything. You know, it had political prestige and culture and religion and economy. It's this incredible place. You know, for example, I mean, it was the kind of place that if you went there, you saw things there that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Um, They had this great outdoor theater. So we tend to think ancient times, what ability did they have? It held 24,000 people. You know, I mean, so the, the way it was designed and all that, the way it would bowl in so that the, it would carry the noise properly. It had the great temple of Artemis or Diana. Um, to give you a little perspective, that was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. Um, it was probably the fourth largest city in the world at the time. 250,000 people, uh, they surmise. So, you know, two and a half billings is, whatever the plural of billings is, two and a half of, of us. And so the author of Acts, Luke, probably deals with Ephesus in such detail because it is something of a strategic place, right? He starts right here in the middle of chapter 18, and he works it all the way through chapter 20. And, uh, you know, he probably sees it as strategically important. And so in your mind, you might think, well, since it was this strategically important place, Paul's team probably has this detailed missiological plan to, quote-unquote, reach Ephesus, or to reach Ephesus for Christ and the region beyond, and so on. Yeah, you might think that, but you'd be wrong. I mean, it's, it's way less organized than all of that. It's as though they're going to need God's help to do this. And so, what we find in this passage, and we're going to keep finding it in Acts, is that they do what they can And then God does what only He can. So, how do we look at the passage, right? It's a pretty big section. Let me give you three frames, and and each one is going to build on or improve on the other. One way, if you've ever taken a a class, you know, a Bible study class in Acts, you might look at it this way, through the frame of Paul's uh, missionary journeys. And so, if you look at it that way, and a lot of Bible students do, and it's helpful... Uh, What you find is in chapter 8, verse 22, that marks the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Done. That's end. And then you step into uh, chapter 8, verse 23, and that marks the beginning of Paul's third and final missionary journey. So some people look at it like that. It's helpful to understand that that's what's going on in Acts is that, you know, Paul takes these separate missionary journeys. That's not Luke's primary focus, though. He knows a lot about Paul. So he writes about it, but that's not that's not it. The second frame that you could look at, and it's also helpful, is to look at it through the frame of the leaders. Who who's the one doing the work? You know, who's operating there? Who are the who are the main players? And it would kind of go: Paul, Apollos, Paul. Right? Paul has this initial visit to Ephesus, uh, but he doesn't stay long. And then there's Apollos, and he's there for a brief bit, and then uh, uh, then Paul uh, returns. And while that's helpful, that's not what, Acts or that, what Luke is doing either. He's not chronicling leaders. He's not doing a biographical sketch. What Paul is really doing is he's marking the advance of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit in all of these places where it's, it's really growth against the grain. The gospel comes in, it makes contact, there's this polarization that happens, but by the power of God against all odds, the Holy Spirit works and people believe, and there's life there. And what Luke is doing in the book of Acts is he's showing that from place to place. And here he's talking about how the work begins in Ephesus. So it's not really about Paul. It's not really about the leaders, Paul, Apollos, Paul. It's really about how the gospel work begins in Ephesus. So that's our frame this morning, how the gospel comes to Ephesus. We're gonna, it lays out really neatly in these three different sections. And so that's how we're going to look at it. And the first section is in um, verses 18 through 23. And this is Paul's preparatory work there in Ephesus. Just kind of an initial work. This is where it begins. But one of the things to realize whenever you read it is that Ephesus is not Paul's destination. It's not like he's landing there to do some big long-term work there. Um, he, He just happens to stay in Ephesus on his way. So verse 18 tells us that Paul had stayed where he was before. If you remember last week, uh, they had done this this work in Corinth, and God showed up there, and they got this favorable ruling from the proconsul, the kind of governor, Supreme Court judge guy uh, there over the region of Achaia there in Corinth. And he gave them a favorable ruling that uh, Christianity in that region was not illegal. And so Paul stayed probably because this gave him an open door to keep doing fruitful work. So it says he stayed there longer, and uh, he was able to have a fruitful ministry there. But when it comes time to leave, it doesn't say he set out for Ephesus. It says instead that he set sail for Syria. So what he's doing is he's going back home, you know, going back to headquarters where he had been sent off because he has something else to do. Now, this may have been, I don't know if you noticed this, it says that he was under a vow. He had cut his hair and he was under a vow. Um, that probably, you know, we don't know exactly what that is. It's probably something like the, that Nazarite vow that you would find in number six. Probably not exactly that, but something like that. And that, that may very well be the occasion. It's a very Jewish thing to do, and it may very well be the occasion that's driving him back home, why he has to get back there. So they're traveling, and Ephesus is just sort of on the way. It's a passing through point. Now, having said that, while that's clear, it doesn't mean that Ephesus isn't important to Paul. It seems to be very important. I can point out a couple of things. One, even though he's there for just a brief bit, the the people who travel with him are Priscilla and Aquila, and they remain there. It seems probably under his direction, and they're very important workers. They're going to show up in the next section, but you find them throughout Paul's letters and so on. Um, And so they're left there. But another thing is that even though he's there just for a brief bit, it's important for him, uh, to him, because he pops into the synagogue. And it says that he reasoned with them. So he starts the work there. He reasoned with them. They're pretty receptive. Early on, they ask him to stay longer. They're not going to do that later. Um, You know, it's going to go south. But they ask him to stay longer. Um, I wonder if maybe they just saw a guy with a nice, clean haircut, and they go, well, you know, he's probably pretty serious about his faith. You know, this being a very Jewish uh, thing to do, that maybe that kind of opened up a little bit, of loosened the jar lid a little bit. But so he reasons, they're receptive, and he tells them he commits to return if he can. He said, I'm going to come back if I can. If God wills, is the way he says it. And then, just so that you could see that the the Ephesus frame is the right frame for us, if you look at verses 22 and 23, what Luke does, the author of Acts does there, is he covers a lot of trip in two verses. It covers an awful lot of what Paul is doing in two verses, so that uh, if you remember, verse 22 is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. What it says is he lands in Caesarea, he goes to Jerusalem to greet the church there, and he goes back to his home church, his sending church in Antioch, probably to make a report there. End of second missionary journey, uh, verse 23, um, you know, he, he uh, takes off, begins on his third and final missionary journey to all these places he's been before, strengthening disciples there, following up and trying to help out. So it, what's that doing there? Well, it's kind of a wrap-up. It's as though what Luke is doing there is saying uh, this is all the stuff Paul is doing while he's not in Ephesus, right? This is what we're talking about now, the gospel work in Ephesus, and there's a period of time where Paul does this preparatory work, and then he's gone. But we're talking about Ephesus here, and the work is beginning. And the second section, uh, there, another guy comes in. His name is Apollos, and he complements that work, and it's, it's the rest of the part of chapter 18, now, if you're going to understand the rest of the passage, if we're going to understand it, we have to have John the Baptist's ministry in view, right? And so, we've got to think about it because both reference him. Um, it's a, really a, kind of an emphasis in the backdrop of the early ministry in Ephesus. Now, part of the problem is there are certain things that we don't know. Luke just doesn't go into detail. What we do know whenever we remember John the Baptist is that he was a baptizer, right? He baptized people, and that he was uh, a prophet. Essentially, he was the last Old Testament prophet. And so you would say this, his ministry was about pointing the way uh, to the Christ, pointing to the one to come, and that was Jesus, right? And so while he pointed to Jesus as the Christ, he didn't know all the details about how Jesus fulfilled that. So you might say it this way, what he said was true, but it wasn't the complete picture. Right? So, that was, that was his role. He was ushering in the coming of Jesus, and there were people who believed and responded, and they were baptized by him in a baptism of repentance. And Apollo seems to be in line with that. Now, when it comes to Apollos, one thing really jumps off the pages of Scripture, is he's a talent. He's clearly a talent. You know, and there's certain kinds of people like that, that you walk into a room, and um, if if it's a certain ability that's on display, they just pop. You know, you can sometimes see it on, in sports or in music or whatever, in academia or whatever. You've, you find people that are just clearly a talent. And whatever else Apollos is, he's that. He's gifted. He's educated. He's eloquent. He's passionate. He's bold. And so that's clear right there. There are two other things in this section that, uh, about Apollos that are at least equally as important. And one of those is this. As in, in spite of all that talent, um, Apollos lacks something in his teaching at this point when he's in Ephesus. I mean, like he's a guy, he's a it's, it's like in baseball, um, you know, America's best sport. Uh, it's like in baseball, whenever they're looking at evaluating players, they have guys that they rank them as five-tool athletes. All the things that you're looking at that you want in a base player, uh, base player but not a base player, a baseball player. Um, you know, they, they look at this young kid and they go, he's got all of that. He's got these five attributes that we want. And yet, when that kid is 17, when he's 21, he's not ready for the big leagues. He's got all the tools, but he's got to develop those. You might look at Apollos that way. Apollos has all the tools. He's clearly a talent. But at this stage, while he's in Ephesus, there's something lacking in his teaching. Um, What he said was true. See that in verse 25? It says, quote, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And yet, when Luke writes this, he points out something. There's like a limitation. He doesn't go into great detail, but it's clearly there. He spoke and taught accurately concerning Jesus, though... He knew only the baptism of John. It's not the complete picture. And so what we find is Aquila and Priscilla, these co-laborers with Paul, they step in and in verse 26, while Apollo spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, they come alongside him and they explain things so that he would be more accurate. Right? He had some gaps. He had some things that he needed to learn. He wasn't ready. This probably means that Paul was in line with John the Baptist's teaching, so he, what he believed about Jesus was true, uh, but it was general. It wasn't all in the particulars. It probably means that while John announced Jesus as the Christ, the one God promised, Apollos believed that, and he knew that, but he just didn't have the complete picture. So he probably didn't know all the details of Jesus' life, and exactly how he died and was buried and rose from the dead and the significance of all that. Some, somewhere in there, there's an inadequacy. So that's one thing, is that he wasn't quite ready for this. The second thing is that Apollos doesn't stay. He learns, which is good. I think as an aside, don't you think that's interesting? Sometimes the smartest people, the most learned people, have the most difficult time learning. Right? They're so busy being smart that they forget how they got there, right? And so I think it's one of the cool things about Apollos is that he's clearly, you know, the most talented guy in the room, it seems. And yet when Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, he learns, he's teachable. And uh, so I think that says something good about him. So he learns, but after he learns in this setting, he leaves. You know, he goes on to the, the broader region, Achaea. We find out at the beginning of chapter 19 that he lands in Corinth where Paul had already been. And so, this just represents this short, early, formative stage in Apollos' ministry where, you know, he's gifted and he's growing, but he's just he's not ready for the big time, if you want to call it that. Uh, so, he moves on to Corinth, does good work there. What he does in Ephesus, because that's Luke's emphasis, does actually complement the work that Paul had done, what God had planned there. And so, by the time he was equipped, Apollos isn't there anymore. But it was ministry in the right direction. So you have this, you know, if you, you take these first two sections, there's this kind of start with Paul where he engages the synagogue and Priscilla and Aquila are there. And then there's this thing with Apollos where he steps in and in a probably a more general way is pointing to Jesus as the Christ in the synagogue because that's what they would believe. And then there's this third section where we see some fruit. And it's where Paul returns. It's at the beginning of chapter 19, those first seven verses. And so... What happens is when Paul returns, keep in mind, John, John the Baptist's ministry is in the backdrop, not just with Apollos, but with evidently a, quite a few folks in the synagogue there. And what Paul does when he returns is he points out how Jesus is the fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry, and about a dozen of them believe. You get the logistics in verse 1. Apollos is back in Corinth, Paul returns, He's in, he comes to Ephesus, and he found disciples there. Meaning, in this context, that they were, they're John the Baptist disciples. So in a way you could think of it like this, they're kind of Jesus' disciples, they're, they, because they're going to believe uh, what John taught, uh, in pointing to Jesus and all of that. But they have those same limitations, and it looks like they have more limitations even than Apollos had. So they know about Jesus in this very general way. Um, But they have these limitations. And somehow, Paul notices this defect in them. Now, be careful whenever you hear Bible scholars and Bible teachers tell you uh, how that's the case. Because sometimes if the author doesn't tell you how, there's a good chance that the teacher doesn't know how either. Uh, Right? So we know what's revealed and what's not revealed, we, we don't know. We might be able to connect the dots and have some pretty good ideas, and there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. We just need to be humble whenever we do that. What we do know is that Paul you know, is able to recognize something missing there. And so he asks him about them. We're not told how, but they, they don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have a personal sense of Jesus. Um, these disciples didn't receive the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, they say they hadn't even heard of him. You know, our Pentecostal uh, friends, charismatic friends go, oh, well, so these are Baptists, right? That's not true. Baptists believe in and embrace the Holy Spirit. Because if you have Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you have his Spirit. Jesus doesn't leave you alone. You know what I mean? So whenever you, when you submit to him and you believe in him and you put your hope in him, Jesus gives you his spirit. Another name for the spirit in the New Testament is the spirit of Christ. So when, so when Jesus says, I'm going to always be with you, he means it. Um, even when you're not feeling at your best. Even whenever you're in those drier seasons. Put it like this. When you, <laughs> Jesus makes this promise to you, and we all, if you're in that great stage, and you feel it, you have a sense of his presence, Great. But what Jesus says is true even when you don't feel it. So when you need it most, like, like when you're in that dry season and you're not feeling it, he's never lied once and he has not lied to you. So he gives you his spirit, his spirit the spirit of Christ. Um, and so Paul's way here uh, to detect this is to ask them about baptism in verses 3 and 4. You know, their baptism. Because Paul knew, and what Brad said is absolutely true, the idea that you would respond to John the Baptist's ministry and not be baptized was ludicrous. The idea that you would believe in Jesus and not follow in baptism, just that didn't occur in the New Testament. If you believed, you submitted yourself and you identified with Jesus that way, right? And so whenever he asked them about their baptism, he goes, okay, he knew they were baptized. They were disciples. Like, into what were you baptized then? And they answer, verse 3, into John's baptism. There's another baptism. Into John's baptism. Now, if you go to places, what did John say about his baptism? One example is Mark 1.8. And he says, by paraphrase, I'm baptizing you with water. Like, you're going to come, I'm preaching God's word, I'm telling you the truth, I'm speaking for the Lord here, but whenever you come to be baptized in repentance... I'm just baptizing you with water. You're responding to the truth. But somebody's coming after me, and he's greater than I am. I'm baptizing you with water, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So if you were a disciple of John, you knew this. You knew that whatever you entered into there, that John was not the last chapter, and that what you were entering into was not the whole picture. And what Paul does in verse 4 is he explains this to them. And he just connects the dots. John did two things. He offered you a baptism of repentance. That was true. And he told you to believe in the one to come, the one who would baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's Jesus. John points to Jesus as the Christ. He says the Christ is coming. And he says he's the one. And so he tells you, don't believe in me, believe in him. And in verse 5, they receive a different baptism. Right? In verse 3, they, they were baptized into John's name. You know, when Brad baptized uh, the Grimm girls, um, he baptized them the way that we're told to baptize. Uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Salvation is from God. And so he, they receive a different baptism in verse 5, a greater one, one in Jesus' name. There's about a dozen of them, and it says that Pentecost catches up with them in verse 6, right? Because what happened there happens to them. It's this ongoing thing. Paul lays his hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, direct contact, right? Direct divine contact. They speak in tongues and prophesy, and this is a sign that the Holy Spirit... is authenticating this, that they're included in Jesus' salvation the exact same way that those at Pentecost were because they're part of this experience. They're a part of this work of God. And if you look at it, you go, John the Baptist was a prophet. He's a great man. He spoke for God. He spoke the truth. John the Baptist was a prophet. Jesus is Lord and Savior. So John the Baptist speaks for God, and what John the Baptist speaks is, Look to Jesus and put your hope in him. And so the work in Ephesus starts with some fruit. You know, it's a, lo- it's, it's a long way of saying that Paul comes in and, you know, the gospel jar is, kind of squeezes out a little bit, but he's got to go. And then Apollos comes in and with a little help from Aquila and Priscilla, he squeezes the jar lid a little bit and decides, I'm going to go to Corinth. And then Paul comes and he does it and then there's some fruit. The, the jar, the lid is open. What are we to make of it? There's probably a lot of things, but what I want to do this morning, I want to give you two lesser lessons and then one main one, kind of a main insight. So two lesser lessons and one uh, main insight. The first one is from Paul, or from Apollos, I'm sorry, and it's this. Talent is not enough. I, most of us have something of an eye for talent, right? They're just look in different fields. There's probably an artist, a musical artist, and their talent just speaks to you, right? You sort of connect to their ability and that what God has given them in a way that just sort of almost transcends everybody else. Or sometimes you just see somebody play a particular sport, um, and you know that athlete just has such a beautiful game, and their talent just sort of speaks for itself. I just want you to know that we see this over and over and over again in Scripture. That talent, if you want to call it gifting, it's just not enough. It's another way of saying, I'm not enough. And so it's, you, know, you might go, well, duh. But it also means that you in your class, you're not enough. You raising your kids, you're not enough. You in the Christian life, you're not enough. Talent's not enough. Apollos was educated, eloquent, passionate, Bold, you know, when it comes to a talent perspective, he's the whole package. You couldn't do better. And yet, where he is right there, it's not enough. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen somebody who's really talented, but their gifting outpaces their character? Or their gifting outpaces their knowledge? And the reality is that God gives and uses talent, but it's not talent that turns people. It's truth. And God can use an ass. Right? He does, he does, I mean, he's pleased to use gifted people who he gifts. But God's used a donkey. God can use you. God can use me. In other words, all of that to say that while it's great to have talented people and to really thank God for the gifting that he's given us in our local church, it's, the mission doesn't rise and fall on that. Talent is not enough. The second is related to it. Uh, it's from Paul. And it's this. It's strategy is good but not ultimate. You know, as Paul like, walks through Ephesus, he knows it's strategic and he commits to return. But he knows he's in the hands of the Lord. He says, listen, I'm going to come back if God wills. He's got something of a plan, but we need more than a good plan. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. That second part of that sentence is really important. Um, Paul works hard. He thinks, he tries, he risks, he sacrifices, but Paul's limited. Sometimes we read Acts, and we sort of think, well, like, look at what Paul did. And the reality is not that. It's look at what the Holy Spirit did through Paul. Uh, The Holy Spirit did similar things through other people. Paul was successful not because his plan was so powerful, but because God showed up. Because the Holy Spirit honors the truth of the gospel. So what do we do? What do you do? You plan, but you trust God because what we set out to do only God can accomplish. This, this, the mission of believers, the mission of the church, is a fool's errand without the presence and power of God. God sends workers, but the work of salvation is His, and that's the main insight. So you could go like, well, hey, talent, uh, talent's good, but it's not enough. Strategy, strategy is important, but it's not ultimate. It's not enough we need something more than talent we need something more than strategy we need god to take this personally and he does the main insight and this is no surprise is that salvation is a powerful work of god there's a place uh you know apollos had moved on to corinth and that's where uh, paul had already been there and there were some believers there and being in Corinth they they got into a debate like who's the big deal and you know is Paul a big deal is Apollos a big deal and all of that now listen to how Paul describes this for them in his first letter it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 he says what then is Apollos what is Paul servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each i planted apollos watered but god gave the growth So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So when a guy like me reads this, and I look in the mirror and I go, existentially, who am I? 1 Corinthians 3 says, you're not anything. You're nothing. You're so replaceable, that could happen in a second. You know who's something? The God who causes the growth. He's just a servant through whom people believe salvation is the powerful personal work of God. You see it in this passage. It's more than believing things that are true about God. It's also the Holy Spirit's direct contact in your life to transform you and take you from death to life on the basis of what Jesus did um, to draw you to believe in him. That's the main insight. Salvation is not man's persuasion. It's God's power. had this experience. It's great for me. I've had opportunities to share the gospel a ton throughout my life. And I've had times where I could not have done better. I could not have reasoned better. I could not have been more eloquent, I mean, relative to my gifting. And I've thought to myself, that's about as good as I can, I can go, right? I mean, that's it. Like, mic drop relative to me. And the person looks at me and is like, okay. And I've had other, other times where I, could, I was nervous or I couldn't get my mind clear. And it felt like my, my foot was on my tongue the whole time. And it's as though the Spirit of God was there you know, almost moving me out of the way for the person to believe. We need way more than talent, way more than strategy. We have a God who takes all of this personally, um, even you. The main insight is that it's not about man's persuasion. It's about God's power. It's God who brings the power. We just speak a word for him. We point to Jesus. He's the good news. You know, Paul does this. Um, into, what? into what have you been baptized? Oh, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. When Apollos makes it to Corinth, what's he explaining in the synagogue there? Oh, you guys are anticipating the Christ. Let me tell you who that is. That's Jesus. You know what we do here? We point to Jesus' finished work. Jesus is the one. He's the righteous one. He's the one who bore our sins on the cross. He's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who will save you. If you believe in him, so believe in him. And like I said, there's some of you probably walk through the door and you're like, I don't have a lot. Jesus has been carrying people for centuries. Those strong saints, those aren't people who carry themselves. Jesus has been doing it for centuries. Some of you, I'm praying for you. Because what you need is something beyond yourself, but that's kind of the first thing, right? Is to go, that's right, salvation is God's work. And God is good, and he's powerful, and he's going to carry me. Um, So I'd say, sure, the lesser lessons, learn those. They're important. Talent. Talent's good, not ultimate. Strategy's good, not ultimate. But whatever else you do, get the main one. Believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Again, Father, thank you for a great Savior who lived the righteous life we could never live, who went to the cross and bore what was ours, our sin, so that by faith we could bear his righteousness before you. Who is a death defeater, so that we can overcome death, because we're united with him. Thank you for your grace. So I pray for believers who are struggling, that you, by your grace, strengthen us, please. For those who don't believe, that you would turn on the light. For those who are in that, that tough, tough time, that they would know that you don't lie and that you say you're always with them, even now. And I pray that they'd have a sense of your presence, that you're for them and that you love them. Um, and we ask that you be glorified in it, in our church, in the lives of the members of our church, and use us in our community to be part of that gospel work, maybe servants through whom people in the city believe but you cause the growth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.